American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and colleague and comrade in arms, Derek Davison. And unfortunately, we've got to begin this episode with some sad news. Derek, I'm not sure if I've even told you yet, but our CNN Plus contract has been canceled. So American Prestige will not be appearing on CNN Plus. Uh, So you got to return that boat, Derek. I'm sorry. I know you've been really excited about your dream. Yeah. uh, My whole life, (laughs) I've wanted to be on CNN. Plus, which I realized just came into existence like a month ago, but still. <laughs> so God our contract damn. has been canceled. So that means everyone needs to subscribe over at Substack. Um, subscribe to our emails. We're starting discussion threads. We're going to start some doing some um, unofficial type book reading series on the topics that we've been talking about. And we hope to have it uh, be a place where we a- are able to interact with the fans and you're able to interact uh, with us. And we're going to start doing all sorts of new content. So please check out Substack. Um, subscribe both free and of course paid we always like that that payment especially since cnn plus just canceled their 40 million dollar contract so this is where we are this is i mean like i got when we used to do those aptitude tests did you ever have to take those in school of course yeah like i i mine came back like this person should have a show on cnn plus and that was (laughs) you know 35 years ago so yeah no it makes sense i mean this has been been such a huge dream Yeah, it's been a huge dream. So we're really disappointed. So sorry if our energy isn't up in this episode. But as always, Derek, there is so much going on in the world. So why don't we get into it? And of course, uh, the most important thing that people have been talking about this past week is the war in Ukraine. So how have things developed there, Derek? So I think um, it's not the most important thing. But since we talked about it last week, we should probably um, offer a little update on the fate of the M- Moskva, the Russian missile cruiser that was once at one time the flagship of its uh, Black Sea fleet. Uh, I believe last week uh, when we recorded, uh, it had been damaged, it was listing, was being towed to port. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear what had caused the damage, um, but uh, it then subsequently sank, uh, apparently while being towed to port. Uh, it seems likely at this point, uh, based on uh, what evidence has come to light, that uh, it was, in fact, uh, heavily damaged by Ukrainian anti-ship missiles. Um, and uh, as I say, it kind of caught on fire. There, there was an effort to get it back to port to salvage it, uh, but that was unsuccessful. Uh, there is a question lingering about the fate of its crew. Uh, now, the Moskva uh, fully crewed probably had between 500 and 600 uh, people on board. Uh, the Russian military released a video over the weekend uh, featuring the commander of the Russian Navy, Nikolai Yemenov, uh, Yevmenov, excuse me, uh, sort of inspecting the survivors or reviewing the survivors uh, in Sevastopol. That video seems to show a a group of people much smaller than 500 to 600 people. Uh, And so this has raised questions about whether there were any casualties. The official Russian line uh, is there were not. Um, I believe the Washington Post reported earlier this week uh, that there are uh, 
purportedly families posting on social media sites in Russia, um, giving interviews to whatever independent media outlets are still uh, open in Russia, suggesting that, you know, they had loved ones who served on that ship. Uh, they don't know where they are. They've gone missing. They're kind of, you know, demanding answers. Who knows? You know, the the media access to you know, inside Russia is not great. And, and uh, you know, who knows how widespread this is. But there do appear to be some questions uh, as to whether or not there were, in fact, casualties in this incident. Why is this important in terms of a larger macro structure? Does it say anything about the information war, which has been getting a lot of play, even though it seems like, uh, I'd actually, I'm curious what you think. It seems like Ukraine is, is kind of fallen off of people's interests. I, I hear much less about Zelensky. I hear much less about the war in general, at least on social media. So, so I guess first question, why is this important? And second question, what do you think about the, the tenor of coverage of the war as, as, as it w- continues to go on? I mean, the Moskva was a, was an important ship. I mean, it was obviously, you know, as the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, it was, um, you know, a, a, a major platform. Uh, so, you know, losing it does hurt the war effort to some degree. I don't think it's um, decisive in any sense uh, in that regard. Uh, there is a, a certain amount of symbolism to having your uh, local flagship sunk by the enemy uh, that I think may be, in fact, more, you know, maybe may even weightier than the uh, the practical uh, ramifications. Um, it would be, it'll be interesting to see if they try to replace it. To do that, I, I would assume uh, they would try to bring in a ship from outside uh, the region. But of course, Turkey has shut off uh, the straits into the Black Sea uh, to warships, uh, you know, invoking its uh, Montreux Convention rights. Uh, so the Russians would have to make the case that whatever ship they brought in uh, was actually already deployed somehow uh, in the Black Sea and is just returning to port, which may be a difficult uh, case to make. I'm not sure if they'll even try to do it. Um, so yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I don't know that it has a huge practical implication for the conflict, especially now that it's shifted, as we'll talk about, uh, to, to a more localized uh, war. Um, you know, in terms of the information war, I think, yeah, there, there's, I mean, it's just very difficult to know exactly what's going on. And you get a story from, from the Ukrainians and Western media that um, I'm quite certain is not the story that's being reported in Russian media. Um, you know, and you have to sift out what what seems plausible here and and uh, everybody's got their own version of events and their own biases here so uh it's it's been difficult uh, not as difficult as some other conflicts i can think of recently but um, it, it has been difficult to uh, really understand and try to ascertain what exactly is is happening so as you gestured toward, it seems like there's been a shift um, in the war, particularly as I understand it, there's been a, um, a shift to the east, to the, uh, the, the Donbass and the um, People's Republics there. So is, is that accurate? What's been going on? Yeah, so this has been something the Russians have telegraphed for some time now, the Ukrainians have been preparing for. Uh, they finally seem to have begun their quote-unquote second phase eastern offensive uh, in the Donbass this week. Uh, the Russians, 
appear to be making progress. Uh, for example, uh, I saw something today that uh, I think the the governor, the Ukrainian governor of Luhansk Oblast, which is one of the two uh, Ukrainian provinces in the Donbass, said that uh, the Russians now control about 80% of that province. They had controlled around 60% prior to this week. They still don't seem to have gone fully, you know, it's kind of fully uh, engaged in the offensive. From what I can tell so far, they're probing different spots along the front line. Of course, the Ukrainian military has been in the Donbass, had a, had a sort of permanent presence here since 2014. So uh, that front line is fairly, was fairly well established. It seems to be moving now to the West. So far, they seem to be mostly kind of probing for weaknesses along that line rather than fully uh, kind of engaging. There is also, uh, there continues to be this potential for the Russians, since they control sort of a, a, a swath of territory around eastern Ukraine, that they may uh, appear, and they, there are signs that they may be trying to do this, uh, move, move both from the north and the south and kind of a pincer movement to try and cut off the Ukrainian military, uh, surround it. Um, you know, again, it, it remains to be seen whether they're going to be able to do that. But this is a much more, I think, manageable conflict for them. It, it gets into a war of attrition that I think uh, the larger Russian military is probably better equipped to handle than the Ukrainians. Um, that I mean, that's leaving aside the influx of weapons, which we'll get into in a, in a moment uh, from the West. Um, but, you know, I do think the nature uh, of the conflict has changed uh, a fair amount and will is going to be this sort of grinding kind of inch by inch, foot by foot uh, conflict, probably for the foreseeable future. Do you think there is um, the intention of Russia to conquer and incorporate uh, the Donbass? Is that the ultimate goal, make it akin to what they did with Crimea, or is it just impossible to know at this point? Um, uh, yeah, I think it is at this point. I don't think the Russians have... Uh, been all that interested in incorporating the Donbass. It's not as economically valuable as the Crimea. It is an sort of industrial center. There are some coal resources in the Donbass, uh, but it's fairly impoverished as, you know, most kind of heavy industry or heavy industrial places tend to be. And I don't think the Russians have been terribly enthusiastic about taking that on for the last eight years um, as this conflict has sat frozen uh, for all that time. Um, but I do think at this point, probably what they want is to incorporate the Donbass along with the, the Azov uh, coast of Ukraine, you know, running into the, into Crimea, uh, and then probably also uh, parts or the entirety of Kherson province, which is uh, on the Black Sea coast and the other uh, kind of kind of on the the western side of Crimea, uh, because that province securing that province. Uh, secures uh, various things for, for Crimea. It secures its water supply uh, and maybe some other strategic uh, concerns in terms of uh, kind of making Crimea a little more, a uh, little safer, a little more stable uh, from the Russian perspective. So, you know, I, I, I think it, it seems like their aims have, have come down from, let's say, regime change, if that was the aim at the beginning of the war. Um, and now I think, you know, annexing the Donbass and these other territories is probably 
the victory state maybe for for Russia. I mean, that's what they would they would do and, and sort of claim uh, success. Um, the 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 uh, I think you know we may, maybe want to talk about this next, but the 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 key city here still to to fully kind of fall into Russian hands is Mariupol, the the port city uh, on the Azov, which um, remains a, an issue even uh, weeks after it was besieged. So yeah, let's talk about Mariupol, and then let's discuss the uh, in, uh, money Americans are spending on funding the war. So Mariupol at this point uh, seems to be almost entirely in Russian hands. There is a steelworks, um, an Azov uh, steelworks. I, I'm not I'm not sure the the full Ukrainian name. I apologize, but uh, there is a major steelworks kind of on the outskirts of the city uh, toward the coast that is. Still holding out. There's a Ukrainian, you know, a, a group of Ukrainian defenders. I don't know how large it is. I assume in the hundreds, probably not more, much more than a thousand, if that. Um, holding, sort of holding out there. Uh, but the rest of the city appears to be uh, in Russian, under Russian control. Um, the Russians. I mean, I think. Vladimir Putin even today, Thursday, uh, declared that Mariupol had had fallen, and of course the Ukrainians and uh, the U.S. and everybody are, are disputing that because there is still this one place where there are defenders holding out. Uh, the Russians have issued a number of ultimatums to this this group of defenders. They've offered safe passage. Uh, they've the Ukrainians have rejected this uh, at every turn. Uh, they seem committed to sort of. St- sticking it out as long as they can. I'm not entirely sure what the Russians intend to do. It sounds like they're, um, they, they had considered raiding the, the steelworks to try and finish this. Um, but they, it sounds like they may have reconsidered that and are, are planning to just leave a sort of, um, you know, minimal military presence surrounding the plant to kind of maintain a siege of sorts and keep these uh, keep them bottled up. The Russian leader now calling off his military's plans to storm Mariupol's Azovstal plant. Instead, he's ordering troops to seal off the site. Uh, but that they're going to, uh, you know, otherwise start to to look elsewhere, move elsewhere to to achieve uh, other aims. Again, potentially, you know, including this pincer movement that may be in the cards. There's some number of civilians, I think, also hold up in this uh, steelworks. Uh, there were uh, three or four buses of civilians that were evacuated. I think just today from Mariupol, uh, but I think I believe there are still a, a number of civilians. I don't know how many uh, still hold up in this place. And again, you know, there's sort of uh, negotiations about giving them safe passage, and uh, who knows what'll what'll come of that. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I think the city is is basically in Russian hands now, except for this. Uh, this one point of conflict that that's sort of lingering. And can you just make clear why this is important in terms of um, Russia's uh, war strategy? Uh, Mariupol is important for a, a couple of reasons. It's the second largest city uh, in Donetsk Oblast, which is the second of the two Donbas provinces. Uh, so you can't really take the province without taking Mariupol. It's also a fairly important port city. Uh, it sits on the Azov Sea, which I think, uh, you know, Russia's intention is to take this portion of the coast away from Ukraine and, and uh, absorb it, um, or maybe at this point, who knows. Uh and it's also, uh, you know, the the main city kind of sitting in this land bridge running from Crimea to the Donbass. You can't really securely 
um, establish that land bridge without taking the city. So there's a number of reasons why uh, I think they want it. Um, I should say when I when I say it's an important port city and, and uh, you know has suggested it has some economic value. That's pre-war talk. Um, by many accounts, it's been completely destroyed uh, in this conflict after you know six weeks or five, four or five weeks of uh, siege and, and very violent fighting. Um, there are also uh, questions about casualties that we may never really know. I don't, it depends on sort of the post-war settlement here or the, you know, sort of post-conflict settlement. Um, There are suggestions of, you know, death tolls running into the thousands, maybe, you know, 10, 20,000 people. Um, But it's, you know, it's impossible to get any hard count of casualties out uh, while the fighting is still going on. And then certainly I think the, you know, the Russians in control of the city, they're going to do everything they can to kind of keep any information about civilian casualties from getting out. So that brings us almost naturally to the um, increasing U.S. spending on the war. So what did Biden just announce and, and how does this relate to what came before and why is this important? So there was a meeting Tuesday, a virtual meeting of Western leaders, uh, Biden, Joe Biden was one of them, um, you know, leaders of the UK, France, Germany, etc. Um, these meetings always generate two things. Uh, one is a flurry of talk of, of new sanctions, although at this point, we're really at the at the point where the only thing left to do in a major way uh, is a European embargo on, on Russian energy. And that still seems to be uh, a tough sell from the perspective of Germany. So I think there's still uh, kind of the Europeans are still internally debating that. Um, the other thing that these meetings always produce is a flurry of promises to send new weapons. Uh, the Germans, I think, pledged to send new weapons. And the Biden administration, Joe Biden, just today uh, announced another $800 million tranche of arms to Ukraine. To modernize Teddy Roosevelt's famous advice, sometimes we will speak softly and carry a large javelin because we're sending a lot of those in as well. The focus, uh, you know, this is one of, you know, the latest of several armed shipments of, you know, of this size or comparable size. Uh, The focus appears to be shifting, though, from the kinds of things that you would offer a a military that was undertaking a sort of asymmetric campaign, defensive campaign, things like Stinger anti-aircraft missiles or Javelin anti-tank missiles, uh, seems to be shifting to heavy weaponry, uh, long-range artillery, uh, tanks, uh, the kinds of things that would be more uh, uh, applicable to the conflict as it exists now in this, uh, you know, kind of army-on-army situation in the Donbass. Conventional war. Uh, Conventional war, yes. So, you, you know, that that's something of a, you know, an interesting development. There's also uh, was a report earlier this week that the Ukrainians had received a shipment of new aircraft, new airplanes. Uh, that turns out to have been not entirely correct. They received a shipment of air, aircraft parts, presumably for the MiG-29, since I believe that's what the Ukrainian military flies. Uh, so... Not quite the new aircraft that they were asking for, but the parts may allow them to put more aircraft into combat, um, you know, kind of maintain or or repair the the aircraft that they have and get them back into combat. The U.S., I think, is also 
mulling over or you know is is already agreed i'm not sure which to uh, uh a helicopter sale that there's a, uh, a sort of uh shipment of helicopters that i think were supposed to go to the pre-taliban government of afghanistan uh, obviously that's no longer an issue uh, i think they're repurposing those to send to ukraine so uh yeah i mean you know there's a lot more conventional arms and, and less of these kind of man portable systems that you would uh, would have been more applicable to the the, the conflict as it was uh, a couple of weeks ago. So do you think the United States is just going to, I mean, nothing lasts forever, but kind of indefinitely do these sorts of funding packages and military arms transfers? Or do you think there's going to be a wall that's hit? Uh, what do you think is, is the major reason. I mean, so if we're looking at this historically, one might say there's the influence of defense lobbying. One might say that the United States still has an interest in primacy in Eastern Europe. I, I guess what I'm really asking with that question is, what do you think Biden believes he's doing, or the Biden administration rather, believes it's doing with these consistent forms of support? I mean, I think they, they believe that, that they're enabling Ukraine to survive the war or, or win in a sense. I, I, you know, I don't know what a, what a end state of this conflict is going to look like. I don't think it's going to look like, uh, an outright victory. And you, you get some people, um, you know, talking about regime change in Russia or like Ukrainian, you know, uh, an outright Ukrainian victory. I don't think that's what it's going to look like. Um, but the survival of Ukraine with, with the Russians limited geographically to only a part of, uh, of the country, I think based on where things stood on paper when this invasion began, uh, you would have to say is, is, you know, is, is not nothing. Uh, I think that's what the Biden administration and European countries that have been providing weapons believe that they've done, that they've enabled the Ukrainian military to survive, to maintain uh, the conflict this long and to force the Russians into a, a, a more limited war aim. Whether or not that's, you know, reflects reality, I don't know. But I think that's certainly what they think they've done. I, I don't think there's any point at which this is going to run out. Um, I think just last week, even uh, the Biden administration met with, uh, you know, the eight or 10 top defense contractors in the U.S. to to talk about long term support for the Ukrainian military. So they're preparing to keep doing this for. Uh, an extended period of time. And there does seem to be a feeling and peace talks have sort of kind of fallen off the radar entirely. There does seem to be a, a feeling that this could go on for, for some time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think they're, they're absolutely prepared to continue supplying the Ukrainians with the, uh, you know, up to and including what they're doing now, you know, by which I mean howitzers and tanks sort of, you know, heavy, uh, heavy armor and artillery for, you know, as long as they feel it's, uh, uh, it's necessary. You're going to hear calls, and there will continue to be calls from from the Ukrainians for more. They're, they want, you know, full aircraft. They don't just want parts. They want the aircraft themselves. Um, you know, some of these things are are too big. I think some of these asks are probably too big or too risky uh, to follow through on. But um, even that, to me, I mean, you know, as Volodymyr Zelensky continues to demand or to ask for more and kind of uh, raise the stakes. I think he's doing it in a way that he knows he's not going to get what he asks for, uh, but he can pressure or shame uh, Western leaders into doing 
a little bit more than they're doing each time. And, and I think he's been, uh, I would say he's been somewhat savvy about that in terms of, you know, asking for the moon and uh, then, you know, getting what he getting can get. Getting the stars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you shoot for the moon and miss, you'll still end up in the stars there. Well, that was a really, uh, really intense. So let's move on to our next topic, which is the uh, marital relationship between Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. Derek, oh, give us some update. Uh, no, just I, kidding, you know, everyone. That's Will not Smith. our podcast. Uh, let's talk about the Chi- uh, the Chinese um, deal that was made recently with the Solomon Islands and development there. So... Uh, China, just this week, in fact, it sounds like um, the foreign ministers, Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi and, and the, the Solomon Islands foreign minister Jeremiah Manale uh, signed uh, a framework agreement, at least. I'm not entirely sure what the scope of the agreement or, or the scope of what they signed was, but related to a big bilateral security cooperation deal uh, that they've been negotiating for some time now. That deal emerges from um, the unrest that the Solomons um, suffered, I think, last year when there was a, an uprising uh, that that affected a lot of properties and, and sort of businesses in the Chinatown section of Honiara. It, it was rooted in uh, basically, I mean, this is like one of the few places I think on earth where the U.S.-China rivalry has become a day-to-day kind of salient part of uh, politics. And there are people who want the uh, the government of the Solomon Islands to embrace China. Uh, there are people who feel very strongly that it should not do that, that it should embrace the United States. And this, uh, you know, really can affect uh, politics. So there was a, there were a number of demonstrations last November, uh, violence, uh, partly fueled by this issue. Um, and in the wake of that, China and the Solomons have been negotiating the security cooperation agreement that seems mostly to to do with kind of law enforcement policing. Uh, you know, if the, the if Chinese citizens or Chinese nationals in the Solomons are uh, threatened, it would uh, you know enable uh, the government of the Solomons to ask the, ask China to come in and, and help out. Uh, but it's worded apparently vaguely enough, or you know maybe intentionally vaguely enough that you could take it to, you know, as sort of uh, a green light for China to open a naval base in the Solomons. And the horror of this, I mean, China has, what, like two military bases outside of China. This would be a third. It's just, you know, too much, too much to imagine uh, for the United States, which has, you know, what, 800 of those things. Pacific Island countries are not anyone's backyard, let alone pawns in a geopolitical confrontation. So this is sent not just the United States, but also Australia and New Zealand, uh, two countries that have sort of regarded the Pacific as their uh, sphere of influence, um, into this this sort of spasm of you know rage or and or fear of uh, China's expanded presence in the Pacific Islands. Uh, the Biden administration is sending a couple of senior officials to the region. Um, I may have already sent them. They were supposed to go late this week, so we are in fact now late this week. So I haven't heard them that they've actually gone, but they should be on their way if they're not already there to have discussions about uh, rebuilding what has been a somewhat weakened 
U.S. relationship with countries in the region. For example, uh, they'll probably talk about reopening the U.S. embassy in the Solomons. The U.S. paired that embassy back uh, in the 1990s when it sort of consolidated its diplomatic presence in the region. Now that the the new Cold War is upon us, it's uh, sort of incumbent on the United States, I guess, to to expand its diplomatic presence again. So this is, you know, I don't think the security agreement is is all that. I think it's, uh, you know, some overreaction, some, uh, you know, oh my God, my my hegemony is being destroyed, being you know, being undermined or whatever. Um, I don't place a lot of stock in that, but I do think it's. Uh, the reaction to the security agreement, the sort of fit of of uh, rage that's that's gone, you know, it's kind of been uh, it's kind of triggered is indicative of the U.S. China rivalry and where that's going to play out first. Uh, I think the the front line of this is is in the Pacific Islands. Absolutely, and obviously we'll we'll keep uh, paying attention to that because this is, I think, when you're first seeing a real instantiation of it, um, and it'll it'll be interesting to see if this proves to be a microcosm of something larger to come, or if it'll prove to be a bit of an exception. So let's move on. Um, let's stay in the Pacific and talk about North Korea's recent test of a missile, maybe, or something else. What's been going on? So the North Koreans on. Sunday announced that they had uh, tested what they called a tactical guided weapon, which probably means short-range ballistic missile, but who knows. The South Korean military all, all confirmed this, sort of. They said they, they had tracked two projectiles being fired into the sea off of uh, North Korea's eastern coast on Saturday. Uh, it was just uh, a few days ago, or I guess kind of late last week, Kim Il-sung's birthday which is a national holiday, Kim Il-sung being the founder of North Korea. It's a, it's a national holiday in North Korea. So they may have done this test to sort of mark his uh, birthday and the holiday. But I think what they tested is interesting because they talked about, the North Koreans talked about a this weapon being nuclear capable, which means effectively, I think, that they're trying to get into the quote-unquote low-yield or tactical nuclear uh, arena. Uh, there have been indications of potential preparations for a nuclear test uh, in the not-too-distant future in North Korea. Uh, this suggests to me that if they do conduct such a test, it will be uh, of a tactical nuclear warhead rather than something you would put on, say, the tip of a, an ICBM. So that's that's an interesting development because they're not in the tactical nuclear uh, world right now. They're everything they've tested to date has been of the larger uh, variety, sort of strategic variety. Um, so th this is a potentially interesting development and one that uh, you know, if I were in South Korea, for example, I would um, you know be watching with with some trepidation. It'll be interesting to see how the new South Korean administration responds over the next few weeks. Yes, I mean, given that this is a more right-wing administration that is probably going to, you know, hew a little more closely to the U.S. line and a little uh, is certainly going to, I would think, dovetail away from uh, Moon Jae-in's, uh, you know, policy of, of trying to engage with North Korea. It would be very interesting to see how they respond to this. So let's end on talking about what's been going on in Israel-Palestine, particularly between Israel and Gaza. So, um, for some time now, there have been uh, a number of attacks. There were a number of attacks sort of last month in Israel, uh, at least a couple of them 
involving people who apparently had some connection to either they were inspired by or actually had some link to the uh, Islamic State, which is a new development. Islamic State has more or less left Israel alone uh, for most of its existence. Uh, so that was that was an, an interesting and potentially you know not great development. Uh, at least fourteen people were killed in that series of attacks. Uh, it then sparked uh, a series of call them what you will, security raids or reprisals, whatever, from Israeli security forces in the West Bank, uh, particularly around the city of Jenin and in the northern West Bank, uh, in which um, I think at least 23 people were killed. Uh, that was uh, AFP's count. The Associated Press is counting 25 killed uh, over the course of you know, kind of late March and into early April. Separately, but related to that, we've also had the uh, over the past week, I would say, um, the conjunction of the Jewish holiday of Passover, uh, it's Ramadan in the Islamic calendar, uh, and we had Easter um, on Sunday for Christians. Uh, this conjunction is not common historically. It's not not all that common. Um, and it it does lead to, uh, it does often lead, when, when conjunctions like this happen of particularly Jewish and Islamic holidays can lead to tension uh, in the, in Eastern Jerusalem in the sort of Temple Mount or Al-Aqsa complex or, uh, you know, uh, sort of the, uh, the courtyard area around the Al-Aqsa mosque uh, where you have Muslim worshippers and Jewish worshippers trying to sort of occupy the same space and they don't get along with one another and the Israeli police generally side, of course, with the, the Jewish worshippers and you get a fair amount of violence. So on Friday, uh, this sort of broke out in a big way. Uh, police, Israeli police raided uh, the Al-Aqsa courtyard. Has that ever uh, happened before? Because to me, I thought that was like a taboo, but I don't know the history. Has that ever happened before? Has whatever happened before? Have they gotten to the Al-Aqsa uh, courtyard? Well, I, I mean, the, it, it, successive Israeli governments have relaxed. You're right. It used to be a taboo. There's a religious taboo uh, right. on sort of walking on the, the Temple Mount because you might put yourself in the, 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 Kodesh the Kodeshim, spot. The Holy right, of Holies. Exactly. Yeah. But successive Israeli governments have relaxed that taboo and now there it is uh, it is a point among settler groups and sort of third temple groups uh, right. often, uh, you know, kind of clamor for for access to the site. And, and Israeli authorities will uh, allow that. I mean, the, the second intifada was started when uh, Ariel Sharon, uh, you know, famously took a, a cordon of police onto the uh, onto that uh, the, the sort of Al-Aqsa compound and just uh, provoked. Uh, an uprising, um, so that that kind of thing does happen. It, it you know it does happen, and and it generally is not well received. Uh, I have to say. Uh, so on Friday uh, we had a clash like this where you know over 150 Palestinians were injured by Israeli police. Um, you had tear gas, stun grenades, rubber bullets, the usual kind of uh, crowd control methods that wind up being uh, used or misused to, to injure people. What happened today is a crime because we can't enjoy our prayers, we can't enjoy our worship, our freedom, our holy sites, and we can't feel safe anymore, and that's because of the occupation. There were reports of Palestinians throwing rocks at, at people at the Western Wall, which is situated down below the courtyard, and that 
triggered this raid. Um, all of this to say the tensions were have been very high in the West Bank and Eastern Jerusalem. Uh, and then uh, I believe on Monday, it was Monday, that uh, there was a rocket fired out of Gaza, the first one in months. Uh, the, the Israelis retaliated on Tuesday or sort of overnight into Tuesday uh, for that rocket fire. There have since been uh, at least there's been since been at least one more exchange of fire between Gaza militants. It's hard to say whether this is Hamas or Islamic Jihad. It certainly is probably one of the two. Uh, and the Israelis retaliating with attacks on Hamas, usually uh, military sites. They've, they've, you know, claimed they've, they've attacked a couple of rocket factories, I think, this this week. Um, this all has undertones of the Gaza war that, that broke out last year, which was sparked similarly by violence in eastern Jerusalem and the West Bank, um, which then triggered, you know, a rocket fire out of Gaza and the Israeli response and things just spiraled from there. Uh, so I think there's a lot of concern here that um, that we may be on a, a path to a repeat of, of something like that. Well, on that happy note, Derek, thank you so much for providing us with your updates. And everyone, please enjoy our interview with James Lin on the history of Taiwan. See you next week. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are very excited and happy to invite another uh, friend and comrade of mine, uh, James Lynn. Uh, James is an assistant professor at the only department in the country, the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. And most importantly, and why we had him on the show today, is that he is one of the, the country's um, experts on Taiwan, uh, one of the the world's experts on Taiwan, particularly uh, Taiwanese history and the history of Taiwanese development. Um, so James, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Really, really appreciate it. So um, I think we should just start at the beginning because we were talking a little bit before we got on mic about we hear about Taiwan in, in the United States, in the American press. Um, it's often presented, you know, as a quote unquote strategic problem more than anything else, right? It's not the history isn't really taken into account seriously. We don't learn much about the culture or the politics. We just know the U.S. has said they'll maybe defend it. They maybe won't defend it. And that's it. But what I wanted to do on this episode was really get into the history of Taiwan uh, and try to understand the perspective of the Taiwanese people themselves. So uh, the way I start interviews like this is basically, where do you think one should begin when trying to understand the history of Taiwan and the why history of Taiwan modern Taiwan? Why is Taiwan a land of contrasts? Yeah, is Taiwan a land of contrasts? And, and why is that? Um, so wherever you want to begin, I, I think we should just start there and go. Yeah, yeah. Um- I guess a land of contrast is a good way to label Taiwan. Uh, you know, for for most of its introduction to the U.S. public, it's been known as Free China. But we'll talk about why Free China is a problematic label. But that's kind of where I guess this idea of a land of contrast comes from, because it's Free China in opposition to Red China. Um, so I think we should maybe start. We can start at 1945. I think that will make sense in terms of. The narrative of land of contrast, and then we can go back earlier um, for some necessary historical background as we start from 1945, if necessary. So, uh, 1945. Okay, so this is the end of the Second Sino-Japanese War, aka World War II, and this is the time when uh, 
there's kind of a, a, a de facto truce between the nationalists, the Kuomintang, and the Chinese communists led by Mao Zedong in China. Um, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, both sides agreed to kind of join against the common enemy, the Japanese Empire. Um, 45, this is the end of World War II, and then basically hostilities resume. And so um, 45 to 49 is what is called the, the final phase of the Chinese Communist Revolution or of the Chinese Civil War. And at the end of 1949, the nationalist government loses and it retreats across the strait to Taiwan. And that is kind of where Taiwan becomes really consequential in world history um, and kind of where we, the United States also really gets really involved. So that's a great introduction. So just to set the stage. But one thing that I'd also like to talk about are the various differences between the communists and, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the nationalists. Is that the uh, proper way to refer uh, yeah, to the Kuomintang? the nationalists, a.k.a. the Kuomintang, a.k.a. the KMT, if you want to call it for short. Okay, cool. Um, so maybe we could just start a little bit like what are the basic ideological presuppositions of the KMT, um, and how do they relate to the communists, particularly, let's just start in the early period in the uh, 1930s and, and 1940s? Yeah, so um, to understand the nationalists, I would say we have to go back to the end of the Qing Empire, so basically to imperial China. Um, the, the the final Chinese empire was, was ruled by the Manchus. They were a, a group that came from uh, northeast China from Manchuria, uh, and they ruled in a manner that uh, kind of differentiated their own ethnic background from the majority of Chinese, who today are known as the, the Han Chinese. Um, and so the nationalists came to power through this end of Qing era kind of revolutionary um, fervor. Uh, they, they came to power on a nationalist platform that sought to essentially uh, recapture this idea of a Chinese nation-state in opposition to uh, the kind of Manchu Empire. And, what year uh, is this, or what years, rather, um, are this? Um, so the, this the 1911 Qinghai Revolution is the fall of the Qing Empire, and this is when the Republic of China officially begins. Um, the revolutionary kind of fervor is taking place decades before 1911. So uh, there, are, there are tons of reform movements within the Qing government, um, and their revolutionaries outside of the Qing government who are looking to overthrow it. Uh, 1911 is when it finally collapses and the Republic of China is officially established. Um, of course, the Nationalist Party is, is a very complicated uh, kind of entity. It has a number of different factions, different political leaders. Um, and even in 1911, it was, it was a coalition where the Nationalist Party itself was what some scholars have called a weak state. It, it didn't really have um, full kind of uh, James Scott kind of control over all territory within the, the nation state. Um, and so it ruled like that for many decades, all the way until uh, the 1930s. And it was in this moment that the, the Chinese communist movement um, really began to grow, first as a, a largely kind of urban, uh, kind of uh, intellectual elite movement, and then eventually it always starts there, listeners. See, right. it's always the intellectual elites who begin the revolution. J James confirmed it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then it, it transformed into kind of a rural peasant revolution much later. Really, I would argue probably until the 1930s, 1940s, that it really transforms into a rural revolution. 
So how would you define, I mean, I'm sure we could do a 12-episode series on this, but broadly speaking, how would you define the, the role of the nationalists between the teens and, and, and the 30s? Um, what, what do they do? How is it different from the Chinese empire? What distinguishes them from that earlier moment, at least in those initial decades? And then what, <laughs> what, what engenders a sort of res- communist resistance movement? Yeah, so um, uh, the the main kind of figurehead of the Nationalist Party is, is Sun Yat-sen, Sun Zongsen, who is one of these key revolutionaries. He's um, the first elected president of the Republic of China, uh, but he passes away fairly quickly. He passes away um, uh, in the 1920s. And then what happens is uh, this one of the, the faction leaders is a general, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and he leads a faction in the Kuomintang to militarily reunify China. This is the, the famous Northern Expedition, 1927. Um, and uh, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, originally the, the Nationalist Party was founded on certain kinds of um, republican principles. You know, there's a constitution, um, there is an executive branch, there's a legislative branch. Um, but Chiang Kai-shek, when he took power in 1927 and, and kind of militarily reunified China, was still relatively weak but was was a stronger state than it was before, which was, um, I would say, much weaker than than pre twenty seven. From that period of nineteen twenty seven until uh, the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War, it's, this is called Nanjing Decade because this is kind of the the high points of nationalist rule. Um, many historians have argued that Chiang Kai Shek established almost a, a kind of fascist uh, rule of government. Um, uh, he attempted to to kind of strengthen his central authority, even though in the countryside, it was still relatively weak. And he depended greatly upon the ruling elites, especially within Shanghai and Nanjing, which are kind of like the economic powerhouses uh, of that period. Um, and there's there's a lot written about the Nanjing decade. It's been one of the most well-studied periods in, in Republican history. Um, but the is that partially because there are archives available? Yes, yeah, and this yeah. is a well-documented period. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I would say that the, the nationalist period during this is one that's characterized by... Um, Lots of ideological kind of fervor around um, being Chinese, around being Han Chinese, especially. So around an idea of, an, of a central ethnicity, of a central culture. Uh, there were cultural movements that were enacted during this period that attempted to, to unify the Chinese people behind a nation state. So it was largely a nation building project. And what is the Chinese political economy in the 1930s? You mentioned that Nanjing and Shanghai are the economic powerhouses. Is that manufacturing? Um, what What is being done in terms of the political economy? Yeah, so at this period, China is still um, largely rural. I mean, it's, it's mostly agricultural. Um, but there is a rising industrial center in Shanghai, especially. There's a lot of uh, textile production. As we know from Andrew Liu's book, there's also... Uh, tea production, which is still largely rural, but um, the, the urban production is growing this time. And uh, the nationalist government relies mostly upon the customs revenues of these large cities. That's where it's deriving most of its income. But it doesn't derive most of its power from the countryside. And this is where kind of many scholars argue that the communist revolution was successful because it was able to establish a power base in the countryside. Um, it's so funny. We we actually have an interview with Andy Liu in the can, uh, just talking about sort of the tea and, and India and China. So listeners look forward to that. It's extraordinarily interesting. Uh, and he makes an argument about capitalism. Um, so when does the communist movement really begin to take off in China? 
And how would you relate it? I, we'll, we'll do a, a series, I'm sure, on the CCP itself. But in this context, let's relate it to the Republican, uh, sorry, to the nationalist government. What, how do those two movements relate to each other in the 1930s, in particular um, after the outbreak uh, of, of the, the, the Second Sino-Japanese War, I believe you said? Yeah, so um, the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, as I mentioned before, begins as an urban elite intellectual kind of movement. It, it begins actually in Shanghai. Um, and uh, it was kind of initially what was called the First United Front. It was initially actually allied with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. Um, Chiang Kai-shek broke that uh, in in the middle of Northern Expedition. And basically from that period, um, communists kind of forces were largely marginalized between, I would say, roughly 1927 all the way until probably 1945. And um, they're basically, during this entire period, they're being attacked and harassed by the military led by Chiang Kai-shek, led by the nationalist forces. And so they really escape into the rural areas where uh, the nationalist army has more of a limited reach. Um, and it's in these uh, these areas, the rural areas, that they, they establish Soviets, which are essentially communes, and they begin to establish a base within the rural peasantry, a, a base that, um, you know, if you've read like Edgar Snow's Red Star Over China, this is where American observers went to see, um, he went to Yan'an, which is in the northwest, uh, to see how the communists were essentially ruling, you know, whatever they controlled. And it, it was a very kind of utopian project where they allowed for, you know, gender equality, free love, um, uh, uh, communist ownership of, of property. And it, it was something that a lot of the American observers were really um, enthralled by. It was, it was kind of an idealistic vision. And, um, you know, there have been scholars about writing about the communist revolution. Uh, one of the classic works is Chalmers Johnson's work on peasant nationalism. And his argument is that, um, the communists were successful. They were able to kind of turn the tide and and um, defeat the nationalists who had the power of, you know, like the large cities of the industrialists, of um, the urban elites, because they were able to, um, one, kind of successfully establish this, this rural vision that attracted the peasants in the countryside. Um, and also, too, that they were successful in fighting the Japanese in North China, where they were located. Um, and these two things combined kind of gained a great deal of momentum after the end of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, there's also now more recently a more revisionist historiography from um, British historians like Ron Amitter and Hans van de Ven, who've argued that um, the nationalist government, you know, historically has been critiqued for being uh, kind of inept, inefficient, corrupt. Um, and this is largely through American observers who didn't really like Chiang Kai-shek, and the nationalist government did have a certain degree of corruption. But they argued that, you know, there are some things that they did well, and that um, a lot of their lack of success was due to issues outside of their control, namely Japanese invasion that really kind of drained national resources and weakened the regime to the point where um, the communist revolution became kind of fighting against a, a shell of a government. So, James... This, of course, we, we've we've mentioned him a few times, but this, I think, naturally brings us to uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Who was he? Where did he come from? And how did he rise to such a position of importance um, in the Chinese 
you know, uh, KMT movement, government, what have you? Uh, so Chiang Kai-shek is, um, you know, one of these political figures that was associated with the early uh, Guomindang. He was um, a military figure. He came up in kind of his most famous moment was coming up through Wanpo Military Academy or Huangpu Junxiao, which is uh, the military academy that um, trained a number of really famous nationalist generals. And he consolidated his power during the Northern Expedition, what I mentioned earlier, 19, that, that culminated in 1927, um, reunifying kind of China under mostly under his control. He, he did have a number of alliances with what are called warlords or, or kind of uh, local provincial military governors. Um, and he became the, the kind of nominal dictator of China. Um, and he attempted to create this kind of fascist slash uh, authoritarian regime, um, still relatively weak overall speaking, but nonetheless, he, he attempted to, to consolidate all power around his own kind of uh, personal office. Um, now, Chiang Kai-shek is, I would say, firmly uh, a Chinese lowercase nationalist. He, he wants to to fulfill a vision of a Chinese nation state. Um, he wants to have uh, a powerful Chinese nation. Um, and this is how he kind of represented China internationally as well. Maybe we could then talk a little bit about where did he come from? Like, what were the 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 historical experiences that shaped his life? Because, you know, um, we, when we did the long series on Vietnam with Sean Fear, we talked a lot about Ho and his early life within the international communist movement. Um, what do we know about uh, Chiang Kai-shek and, and how he came to have these beliefs about, you know, desiring to build a nation state in a world of nation states? What was his vision of China's relationship to the imperialist powers of the West? I'd like to get a little bit more of a sense of him and his ideology. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did listen to that episode with, with Sean Fear, and I think that the discussion around Ho was, was really great. Um, I feel like the, you know, you guys discussed some of the historiography, like the more recent historiography, historiography around Ho Chi Minh. And I, I probably should start there because Chiang Kai-shek is a figure in Chinese history who um, you know, kind of has a legendary status. He's he's someone who is who's vilified in the, the kind of communist historiography. And he's someone who is, um, he's almost like, what's the word? Hagiographical? Hagiographical? Yeah, I think in, it's hagiographical. <laughs> hagiographical, thank you. In the um, kind of nationalist, capital N nationalist historiography. And I feel like the, the more recent historiography has attempted to kind of take that down a notch to um, kind of portray Chiang Kai-shek more as um, you know, kind of less, not not a larger than life figure, but rather just someone who came to power um, kind of rather fortuitously. You know, he didn't really, no one really foresaw him being kind of the the leader of China during from 1927 um, all the way until his death. He was nominally the leader of of the Republic of China. Um, no one really foresaw that, I and mean, he really wasn't kind of a uh, a political revolutionary in the same way that Sun Yat-sen was, um, or some of the other revolutionaries of his time. He, he came up mostly as a military man, and there's been a lot of good scholarship about his journals, where you do get to see um, some of his thoughts about his day-to-day -day life and about the kind of politics of being the leader of the Republic of China. And I, I think that there has been a move to kind of uh, turn him into just kind of like a regular man who was who was kind of thrust into this position where he 
was able to become a leader and um, essentially tried to maintain control um, when circumstances began to go awry. And they quickly began to go awry, you know, roughly 1937 Japanese invasion. And from then on out, it's kind of downhill for him. You know, it, it, it's difficult to hold back the Japanese. He's, he's facing lots of kind of internal unrest over some of his policies. And then he's forced to flee to Taiwan because he's, he's essentially defeated. And in Taiwan, rules in exile. And he's kind of trying to hold on to the remnants of his vision of Republic of China. And that kind of desire to hold on to those remnants, I think, is really important for Taiwan's history because it, it's kind of like grasping at this lost vision of China. And that's where it becomes really consequential for Taiwan. So that's really interesting because I want to talk a little bit about models of development. One, because that's what you study, and two, because we see so much in our contemporary discussion about, you know, the quote-unquote Chinese model. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the different visions that someone like Mao and someone like Chiang Kai-shek have for what China should be in the world? Um, are they relatively similar visions about, you know, the industrialization of agriculture? Are they very different visions? I, I want to get a sense of how they... In, uh, imagine China in what might be termed a world order and how the communists and the KMT agree or disagree about that. Yeah, I feel like, you know, this kind of goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about Chiang Kai-shek being a military man who kind of found himself in a political position of power and then tried to keep it that way because he wasn't really, you know, he, he did write a little bit kind of political treatises, um, but I would argue he's not really the kind of the kind of forward-thinking development intellectual political leader that you do see in some of the other leaders of the 20th century around the world. Um, Mao Zedong is a little bit more so in that, you know, when he was young, he was someone who read Marx, obviously he read Lenin, and he thought deeply about Chinese socialism in a way that um, would match kind of where he saw China in terms of its own path along, you know, kind of the Hegelian path towards um, capitalism and communism. And I think that the integration of the peasantry in the Maoist vision is what differentiates his model of development from others around the world. And, and there's a lot of really good scholarship about um, the early Mao era and how uh, the early communists began to think about development. Um, one of my my favorite books about this is uh, Arnab Ghosh, uh, who's at Harvard, has a, has a really wonderful book about thinking about statistics and how something that we think about as, as kind of mundane um, was actually deeply uh, structured by communist ideology, by socialist ideology in the 1950s, in the early Maoist era. Um, Chiang Kai-shek it, by comparison, is is not that kind of intellectual. You know, he wasn't he wasn't the kind of person who really intervened deeply into the Republic of China's um, political economy. You know, he left that mostly to people below him. Uh, although I should mention that there are some um, financiers and different kinds of intellectuals within China who are very forward thinking, and there there's a great diversity of ideas about development um, in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Uh, and some of them were, were just really super interesting to read as a historian. Um, I don't want to get too much into that because I feel like that that could be like a whole episode in and of itself. Um, but I would say that, that Chiang Kai-shek, for the most part, 
was more concerned about the politics of ruling and less so about thinking about the Republic of China as like a, a world power. And, you know, I'll, I'll let you take that however you would like. I think it's not, it's not the most complimentary understanding, but I think it's the, it's the accurate one. I'm, I'm curious, you know, given that, you know, we're positing he's sort of a, a doer and not a thinker, let's say, uh, why, uh, what happened in the, in the 1920s to, to motivate uh, Chang to, to end the United Front with the communists and, and purge the communists, or, or at least, you know, purge communist leadership? Uh, from the party, what was what was going on there? Was it a purely political calculation? What you know was was he being influenced by um, you know anti communist thinkers or or what 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 was behind that? So I think that Chiang Kai Shek during this period is thinking about what he needs to rule China without having to share power, and I think that. That is predominantly, you know, it's it's a political calculation for him. I don't think he's really motivated by ideology as much. You know, he's not someone who is concerned about communism as an ideology. He rather sees the communists as a rival, kind of like a rival faction. Um, we have to rem- remember that in the, the Nationalist Party during this time, there are just a number of different factions um, even within the Nationalist Party, and, and Chiang Kai-shek was allied with one of these factions. Um, and as he came up to power, he had to make a number of moves to eliminate other factions uh, within the KMT itself and also outside the KMT. So the CCP, I think, is, is simply another political faction that he was dealing with. Um, and I think he just saw them as that, purely as as just a, a political power that that needed to be eliminated so that he could consolidate power. So, what is the relationship between the KMT and the communists during the war? Um, particularly because I approach this from the American side, and the Americans really do seem to like Chiang Kai-shek. Um, so, I was wondering, like, what 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 do you think is the biggest takeaway if we're thinking about the history of Taiwan from the wartime experience? That is the the World War II post thirty seven experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably should first say that uh, you know Chiang Kai-shek has been kind of the representative figurehead of, of Taiwan, probably a little bit unfairly to the Taiwanese. You know, he didn't really see, when he came to Taiwan, he didn't really see the Taiwanese as anything more than kind of subjects on an island that he was forced to be on. And there is this perspective, especially among the government elite, that the Taiwanese were these former Chinese subjects that had been led astray, they'd been brainwashed under Japanese colonialism for 50 years, and they needed to be brought back into the fold. And so they were really treated like colonial subjects. Um, and so I think that there's this there's this older literature that really equates Chiang Kai-shek with Taiwan, but I would say that most historians of Taiwan today see these things as quite separate, that you know, Chiang Kai-shek represents, he's this figurehead within a colonial regime that colonized Taiwan. And this is why Chiang Kai-shek is important for Taiwanese history. Um, now, of course, once you go into that, then there's all sorts of layers. This is where the Americans come in, where, um, you know, in 1945, the Americans are, are, are deeply invested in, in protecting the Republic of China regime. Um, they were concerned about the rise of the communists. I mean, not so much after the Korean War. That's when, you know, all red alert everywhere, everything goes crazy. 
Um, at that point, it was it was a mild concern comparatively. Um, so they send advisors. Um, you know, there's there's Vinegar Joe Stillwell, who, you know, his nickname tells you a lot about how his relationship was with Chiang Kai-shek. They did not have a friendly relationship, and so that relationship is one where uh, a lot of the later American perspectives towards Chiang Kai-shek were shaped. You know, there were some within the U.S. government who didn't like Chiang Kai-shek, who who thought that he was um, kind of inept, slightly corrupt, um, not that great of a leader. And then there were those within the United States government who, who thought that Chiang Kai-shek is, is the only person that we have who can fight the communists. You know, he's our best option. And we have to um, protect him and prop him up as best we can. And so this is where U.S. support came in for, for Chiang Kai-shek up until 49. And then after 49 on Taiwan, this is where the, the U.S. relationship really begins, that they see Chiang Kai-shek as the only option. Um, of course, there, there have been some histories lately that have shown that uh, there was an American attempt to replace Chiang Kai-shek, but that wasn't successful. Um, so they were basically stuck with them for, for a very long time. So we've gotten Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT uh, to Taiwan. W- maybe we could talk a little bit about why they were forced um, to leave mainland China. What happened between uh, that 45 and 49 period? So this is, this is really the, the transformation of the Chinese Civil War that happens. Um, you know, this is what Chalmers Johnson wrote about when he, when he tried to explain him and and just a whole generation of scholars um, who who were basically asked by the American public, like how how did we lose China to the communists? Um, and this is what so many of the scholars have attempted to explain through things like uh, peasant nationalism is what Chalmers Johnson really pointed to. Um, but I think that that the answer lies somewhere in this combination of you know. The Republic of China being a relatively weak state to begin with, it's one that that had even over like the political economy of of the entirety of China, it had direct control over a limited portion. It was mostly kind of um, customs. Um, the war kind of decimated the finances of the government. Um, hyperinflation was taking place from 1945 until 1949. Um, people all throughout China were just unable to to procure kind of basic necessities. And a lot of that created widespread dissent and kind of discontent with the Republic of China government. Um, the communists had built up this infrastructure of ruling the countryside during the, Sino- the Second Sino-Japanese War. They had established a, a, their own military to fight the Japanese. And after the end of the war, they simply turned uh, to back to fighting the nationalists. And this was an army that Um, had been recruiting well, it had been fighting well, and it was fighting uh, the nationalist army that was beginning to become impoverished. It had been exhausted after years of war against the Japanese. Um, And so the tides really turned, and there was just a series of military victories, um, victories that that Chiang Kai-shek was not anticipating, considering that he had control of kind of the economic centers of China. And very quickly, uh, things collapsed and he was forced to uh, kind of locate a place to, to kind of lick his wounds and regroup. Um, he considered multiple different places throughout China to retreat to, uh, but Taiwan was what he ended up with. And Chiang Kai-shek always thought it was going to be a temporary kind of respite. He thought that he would 
escape with his troops, and then he would kind of rebuild and very quickly, you know, in a matter of years, um, be able to, to kind of raise a military to retake the mainland. Um, but as we know now, that, that didn't happen. He was stuck there all the way until his death, and then the Republic of China became Taiwan. One quick question. Was there ever any talk of a unity government between the communists and the KMT, or was that, or was it something like, okay, the, the Japanese have been defeated, and now we can return to the real war, which is fighting each other? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, during during the Second Sino-Japanese War, there was an effort, the, the, what was called the Second United Front, and um, this is where Chiang Kai-shek was actually, you know, he was actually kidnapped by his generals and forced to negotiate this um, this uh, kind of truce with the communists to work together. Um, but Chiang Kai-shek really didn't want to work with the communists. He saw them as uh, kind of a greater enemy than the Japanese in some ways. And this is uh, kind of... So just a quick question about that then, yeah. James. So if you saw them as a greater enemy, that implies, at least to me, and my, I might be wrong, some sort of ideology. Like, is he a, is he a free marketer? Like, what is he? What is, what is so problematic to him about the communists to the degree that he doesn't want to work with them even? I really don't think it's, it's ideological for him. I think for him, he sees it as who has kind of a greater threat to his hold on power as the leader of the Republic of China. And I think so that it's a personalist thing. It's, it's, it's a, I think it's more of like a pragmatic politics thing. Like who, who is the greater threat to um, his own personal reign? Um, and he's, he's thinking kind of like a, almost like a, a political leader who is um, considering different factions that are vying for power. And he sees the Japanese not as a significant threat to his hold on the Republic of China, because he, he can still rule, even if he doesn't have control over the territories that the Japanese are occupying. Um, he probably thinks that you know the Allies uh, will come to his aid, will kick out the Japanese at some point. But the communists are a real threat to his his regime. Like if if they had successfully kind of enabled their their vision of a revolution, um, you know, Chiang Kai Shek very likely will will be totally out of the political game if he's not, you know, captured and executed. And would you say Mao had a different approach? Like, like Mao is not as much of a person who's focused on his own personal power. Um, cause I'm trying to, to see, like the, take the measure a little bit of the two, the two leaders, I guess is what this question is trying to go for. Yeah. I, I don't know as much about Mao's perspective during this time period. We have to keep in mind that, that, you know, Mao Zedong, um, was one of many early communist revolutionaries. I mean, he didn't really emerge as uh, kind of a major leader until um, uh, much later. You know, this, the, the communist movement began in the 1920s. In the 1920s, Mao was, was a very young intellectual. He didn't really become the, the figurehead until you know, much decades later. Um, I, I feel like Mao's perspective is also a little bit more ideological um, in the sense that he sees his own participation in this as enacting communist revolution. He's, he's mostly concerned about revolution, about being able to um, bring communism to China. And he's not so much concerned about the politics until he becomes you know, the leader of the PRC. And then, and then I think that, um, well, you know, I don't want to say too much about 
about what I might not be too familiar with because I'm not a Mao expert. But I do believe that he is more concerned about the revolution and about enacting a revolution than Chiang Kai-shek is. So comparatively speaking, Chiang Kai-shek is, is more of a pragmatist. So this, I think, brings us to a natural stopping point. I just want to ask one more question, and then we could do another episode really going from 49 onward. In a sense, this has just been a prologue, but I think it's important to get an understanding of what's going on. So when, when Chiang Kai-shek arrives in, in Taiwan, what is the state of his forces? You said several times that he expected he wasn't going to be there for very long. Of course, he's there until he dies in 75. Um, but what is what is the state? And what what are things, what is the state of play? And what does it look like in 1949? So he arrives in Taiwan with about one and a half million soldiers and basically um, a great deal of the Republic of China, China's bureaucracy and of their government is arriving with him. So he's taking a lot of the government leadership. He's taking a lot of the generals. Um, he's taking certain kind of things of, of value that he can take with him. He took um, the artifacts from the National Palace Museum, which is something that even to this day, Beijing uh, wants to have back. And he's also taken the, the gold reserves um, out of the central bank uh, to bring to Taiwan. Um, but you know, the military that he takes over, 1.5 million soldiers, a lot of them are not you know, he took over a lot of, of officers, but a lot of them are also just kind of regular conscripts. And we have to remember at this point, um, the nationalist government, it's defeated because its military is essentially totally weakened. You know, it, it doesn't really have, um, you know, like a an elite military force. You know, otherwise it would have put up a much greater um, effort at defending the regime during those four years. So these are soldiers who, many of them are, are kind of conscripts from poor and rural areas of China, and um, a lot of them are, are really young. Uh, a lot of them were told that when when they were going to be brought over to Taiwan, it would be temporary, that they would be you know, going back to their homeland soon. And um, I don't think that, uh, you know, there's there's really fantastic book that just came out recently about interviews with, um, uh, oral history interviews of a lot of the different aspects of uh, this migration of people that came from China to Taiwan. And a lot of them just, you know, they didn't expect to to stay so long to the point where um, some just didn't even pack bags. They just thought that they were there on a temporary mission and that they'd be back in the mainland in a matter of, of days or weeks. And it turned out to be decades. Uh, and that sets us up perfectly for what will be our next episode, Taiwan. James, I, I hope you will uh, come back for that. And then we could really get into the history of Taiwan itself. But thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, James.